Today's show is brought to you by Freed Hardeman University. You ever thought about going to grad school, but asking what if stopped you from taking the next step? You know, what if I pick the wrong program or the wrong school? Or what if I don't have time? Or what if I can't pay for it? Well, Freed Hardeman wants to help you take that next step without fear. Freed Hardeman University offers you more than 20 graduate programs across five disciplines, business, education, exercise science, counseling, and behavior health, and theology. Now, most classes are available online, so, you know, you can take them from wherever. And Freed Hardeman University makes it its mission to keep tuition affordable for you. In fact, Freed Hardeman University does not charge any fees, so you don't have to worry about hidden costs that may take you by surprise. And best of all, generous scholarships are on offer for most grad programs. Look, as a Christian university, Freed Hardeman cares about you. You're not just a number, and the university is not just about academics. From your first contact with an admissions counselor to the day you walk across the graduation stage, the folks at Freed Hardeman University will walk with you every step of the way. They really care about you. And that's not just advertising. Ask anyone else who graduated from Freed Hardeman. They'll tell you. Or Find out for yourself. Take the first step and apply today. Go to fhu.edu slash chronicle. That's fhu.edu slash chronicle. And I almost forgot, Freed Hardeman University is waiving all application fees for listeners of the Christian Chronicle podcast. That's right. It costs you nothing to apply. So why not go for it? A few minutes and a free application right now could change your life forever. Go to fhu.edu slash chronicle. That's fhu.edu slash chronicle. Freed Hardeman University. And now, on with the show. Welcome to the Christian Chronicle podcast. We're bringing you the stories that are shaping Church of Christ congregations and members around the world. Here's our host, B.T. Irwin. Family and friends, neighbors, and most of all, strangers, welcome to the Christian Chronicle podcast. May what you are about to hear bless you and honor God. In this one, you'll hear from a Tennessee youth minister who made a deal with his youth group that landed him in a waffle house for 15 straight hours. Yes, he ate a lot of waffles, but he also met a lot of interesting people. He even wonders if Waffle House isn't the right place to give us a picture of what Jesus hopes his church will be. You'll also hear from a Colorado artist with a remarkable technique. Because of a disability that took away the use of her hands, she makes all of her art with her mouth. You'll hear her tell her own story in her own words. But first, a few episodes ago, we had Rubel Shelley on the show to talk about his new book, Male and Female, God Created Them, which is a painstaking study of what the Bible has to say about what mainstream culture now calls the LGBTQ plus lifestyle. We'll put a link to that episode in the show notes, as well as a link to the print version that ran in the Christian Chronicle. As Shelley told us, he wrote the book in response to the pressures and questions that Christian congregations and institutions face as more of their members become accepting and even affirming of the LGBTQ plus lifestyle. You, the listener, don't know this yet, but we just recorded one of the first episodes that will run in 2024, and we asked the Christian Chronicle news team to share what issues and stories they think will be big in our Church of Christ community next year. Without hesitation, they said that the, quote, LGBTQ plus issue, end quote, will be hard to not cover as more congregations and institutions will have to figure out where they stand and what they will practice. 
One story that we already knew we would have to cover is a story developing at Abilene Christian University in Abilene, Texas. ACU is a university with deep roots and strong ties in the Church of Christ tradition. And that story begins with a university-sponsored, quote, Holy Sexuality Week, end quote, that took place on campus. That event set off a wave of protest among ACU alumni. Our investigation was already underway, and we planned to report on it sometime early in 2024. However, that story is now breaking in the national news, and so we felt like we at least needed to let our audience know about the main points of the story before the year ends. Here to tell us more about the story and how the Christian Chronicle will cover it is the Christian Chronicle's CEO, Eric Trigestad. Eric, it sounds like this story is going to make our news team busier than usual to start the new year. Oh, I, yeah, there's never a dull moment around here, Brad. What can I say? That's right. That's right. So, Eric, uh, about this story, who, what, when, where, excuse me, who, what, when, why, where, and how? Well, this all started with something that happened on the campus of Abilene Christian University a few weeks ago called Holy Sexuality Week, which you'll excuse me if the first thing that pops into mind is Holy Sexuality, Batman, but that's (laughs) obviously not the tone we want to set here. Uh, This was uh, an event that featured some speakers talking about uh, sexuality and, you know, sex within marriage and uh, got pretty personal. One speaker in particular uh, is someone who once identified as gay and now does not. His name is Christopher Wan, an author who's taught at Moody Bible Institute and used to identify as gay. In his chapel session, Wan emphasized God's unconditional love, but said that love doesn't include unconditional approval of a person's behavior. The opposite of homosexuality is holiness, he said. In fact, the opposite of every sin struggle is holiness. And that is what really uh, set off a lot of the students there that were listening that identified as gay. And they uh, all, they put formed a group called Wildcats for Inclusion and have an online petition that's been signed by quite a few folks. I think, what is it, 2,500 or something like that, including some faculty members there at ACU. Now, it's not just gay students, I should say. These are also supporters of uh, the affirming position which is saying that LGBTQ plus relationships can exist in a Christian context. Uh, and maybe those who just feel like these folks uh, weren't given, you know, their, their representation that they were promised there at ACU. Uh, the statement actually reads, you gave a public platform to people who denied the lived reality of LGBTQ plus Christians claimed inaccurately that homosexuality lacks a genetic basis and made the ludicrous and hateful statement that, the opposite of homosexuality is holiness, which is what that speaker Juan had uh, just said. Said a uh, letter written by Wildcats for Inclusion. That's an alumni group that formed after Holy Sexuality Week. So this has come up on the radar of the administration there. And in an interview with Religion News Service, which we uh, are using on our website right now with their permission, uh, ACU President Phil Schubert said that the Board of Trustees plans to review the university's sexual stewardship policy in January. But he told RNS that uh, while he can't speak for the board, he doesn't expect the policy, uh, the policy to change, largely because the board dedicated extensive time to researching, praying over, and developing its policy in 2017. The policy calls for chastity outside of marriage between a man and a woman, and for the university to create an inclusive environment for all students, even those who disagree with ACU's beliefs, so long as they refrain from sexual activity outside of marriage between a man and a woman. 
And he said, we don't have a neutral position on this. Uh, We're a faith-based institution of higher learning that is governed by a board of trustees that is deeply faith committed. And so they've chosen to provide some guidance on this. So I understand that some would like there to be equal representation of affirming and traditional views of marriage, but that's not where the university is uh, today. And it's not what we feel is the responsibility we have to teach and mentor students according to what we believe the Bible instructs. So basically you uh, have Schubert here kind of doubling down on the university's policy. And they're saying, well, we don't feel like our side was represented. We feel like you took this one side uh, on marriage being between a man and a woman. And Phil Schubert said, yes, that is correct. That's exactly what we did because that's where the university stands uh, to kind of paraphrase there, but they are going to revisit this policy uh, in January, but Schubert kind of expressed a limited, uh, you know, uh, belief that anything really is going to change in this policy. So that's kind of where we are with this story. You think this is uh, uh, leading toward any kind of legal action? I mean, we reported uh, earlier in 2023 on uh, Lipscomb University being part of a lawsuit that was brought against um, not Lipscomb, but uh, I believe the CCCU. Um, Mm-hmm. Uh, right, which is which a group, group, kind of is greater a group of uh, Christian colleges and universities in association. Right. Yeah, and the basis there was uh, that the uh, campus environment at Lipscomb and other schools uh, mm-hmm. was um, uh, was not a healthy uh, environment for people who identify as LGBTQ plus. Mm-hmm. Um, could that be the direction that this ACU? story is is headed is, is I, I don't know i'm certainly not a legal expert and i can only speak from my own experiences here you know the christian chronicle is currently owned by oklahoma christian university and they have a statement of, of faith that everyone here signs and it, it includes uh, some language that mentions that the marriage is between a man and a woman uh so anyone saying that the university is not representative of a of a counter view to that they can kind of go back to that document and say well this is what you signed So I don't know if ACU has something similar to that or not. It really depends to me on, I'm I'm trying to think from the perspective of the students that really feel they have a grievance here. The only thing I can imagine is if they were brought into the university under the understanding that this will be an open place where, where you will be accepted as you are. And then they feel like this Holy Sexuality Week has violated that promise. Perhaps there's something there, but a lot of that has to do with what they were told and whether or not that's legally binding, I think. Mm. Again, I'd feel a lot more comfortable with us getting a legal expert to talk about this. And this may be what we end up doing at the Chronicle as well as we go forward right. uh, that is, and, and kind of cover the the bigger picture of this story. Yeah, I've seen this story pop up in several uh, places, including the one that will have linked the Religion News Service. Uh, how do you think the Christian Chronicle is going to approach coverage of this story? We try and cover everything as fairly as possible. This is such a hot button issue. There'll be obviously a lot of trepidation, a lot of prayer on our part. Uh, This is where we get into one of those things where if we're quoting somebody with a, with a different view on marriage being between a man and a woman, um, are we platforming that view? Because that's the criticism that we receive is that by merely mentioning these things, even if it's not in the context of saying, you know, uh, this is just what this one person says and here's the counter view to it we still sometimes take criticism for folks at saying that those views shouldn't even be mentioned. I obviously strongly disagree with that because I think we need to hear those who disagree with us. And sometimes it's important for the Chronicle to report that, Hey, someone you love and someone you support is 
voicing this view, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, so that's, that's kind of where we'll go with that. Um, our mission is to always cover things in a way that cover things in a way that's uh, fair and balanced and to bring real news that honors God, which is, you know, the words that we live by. And God isn't honored by us brushing stuff under the rug and mm-hmm. not talking about the things that are going on. And this is something that folks are talking about more and more. The conversations that I have with church leaders, um, they're dealing with this. They have gay friends, gay church members, uh, they have children that are coming out. So how does the church respond? How can the church be an open and accepting place where all sinners are welcome yeah. and yet maintain the biblical view of marriage uh, being between a man and a woman? How do you strike that balance in a loving way? Uh, that is a huge question that is facing churches of Christ across the country. It's not just limited to college campuses. But it's college campuses where we see more of the legal action, the big protests, and and those are the places that seem to have the targets on them. But this uh, is something our brothers and sisters are dealing with across the nation in small rural communities, in big metroplexes. Uh, We're just hearing it more and more. And so that's where I really see us going in the new year is maybe a a story that just kind of surveys folks and says, look, what kind of conversations are you having? What are you dealing with? And so I would encourage anyone listening to this podcast, if your congregation is going through this right now, if you're dealing with these issues, I want to know about the kind of conversations you're having. You don't have to name names or anything like that, but we want to be able to share with our readers, here's how our brothers and sisters in Christ are, are coping with this. Uh, here's what you can do. Here's some questions maybe you should be asking. Uh no agenda there other than for us to just share the struggles that we're all having and kind of gauge, you know, this is where we are in our fellowship and this is what's going on. So I would encourage anyone, you can email me. I'm Eric, E-R-I-K at christianchronicle.org. Let me know what your church is dealing with. And I'm sure you'll provide some links here in the show notes uh, for us to get feedback on this. We'll do it. Sounds like we have our work cut out for us in the new year. Eric Trigestad is CEO of the Christian Chronicle and does quite a lot of reporting himself, as the bylines will tell you. Eric, thank you for giving a peek into your reporter's notebook today. All right. Thank you, Brad. We are so happy to bring an extraordinary artist to you on the show today. She does cross-stitch, she draws, she paints, she used to play piano. Every artist has something about her that makes her art one of a kind, perhaps her medium or subjects. But what makes Barbara Bagwell's art special is her technique. Every line she draws, every stitch she sews, and every stroke she brushes, she does so by holding the pencil, needle, or brush in her mouth. That is because Barbara does not have the use of her hands because of a severe illness that struck when she was a young child. Barbara is also mostly deaf, and yet she is not only an artist, she is living as full a life as anyone can live. I dare say she does as much with her one mouth as many people do with two hands. She has quite a story, and I'm glad to report that she recently typed it all out. Yes, with her mouth, and published it as an autobiography, Beautiful Stranger. It's available now, and we'll post a link in the show notes. Barbara is a member of the Pikes Peak Church of Christ in Colorado Springs, Colorado. 
Barbara, thank you for being our guest today. Would you please tell us about your disability and how it became part of your life? Let me start by saying that this is really the only life I have ever known since I was only four years old when I had the encephalitis, which caused all my disabilities. I have very little to no use of my hands and arms. I have a severe hearing loss, a severe hearing aid, and I read lips, and I have a slight speech impediment. So I have now is secondary to the encephalitis. It is called dystonia, and it is not a very well-known condition. It is not progressive. I'm, I'm sorry, it is progressive. And I can tell uh, by how things have gone over the years. When I first went home from the hospital after being sick, I could use my hands a little for a few things, but it wasn't long before I started leading muscle control. And when I was in seventh grade, I noticed my left shoulder jerking violently, constantly, and that had never happened before. When I was 17, I had brain surgery, and the purpose of that was to relax the muscles on my left side. It did that. It was very successful in doing that. And for 10 years, I was very relaxed and comfortable. And then I was in a car accident. I was rear-ended, and I had valuable flush. And all my muscle tension, shoulder jerking, and everything returned. Now, I'll never know that I have a feeling that even if I had not been in an accident, that would eventually, my muscles would eventually have worsened. And I can tell over the past few years that they have, that I'm losing more muscle control. Hmm. But, so it hmm. is progressive, but it isn't something that all dies from like some other muscle condition. You started making art after you lost uh, the use of your hands. Uh, In the book, you tell the story of how, when you were quite young, you started painting and selling rocks at the campground your parents owned in Wyoming. Uh, How did your interest in art begin And how did you grow your skills over the years? Well, first of all, I don't really consider myself an artist. I never have. 
but since you mentioned that Castors all stuck there, so I was 18, we were off the countdown and we received some catalogue in the mail, uh, uh, selling presents to do. Mother ordered a pair of bibs to do for my niece, who was a baby at the time. And when they came, they looked like such fun, I asked her if I could do them, and she said, of course. I enjoyed doing those bibs so much that I ordered a child's prayer to do um, dump custard, also for my niece, for her birthday. And I would often have one project going and I would find another one in the catalogue that I wanted to do that I was already Sewing has just become my favourite pastime. I mostly did stamped crafts, although I did other mediums of sewing. And I made something for every member of my family, except for some of the in-laws. Now, all of my projects were big pictures. Other a lot of them were, and um, then when I was about forty, my eyesight started changing, and I had to have bifocals, and that made it harder for me to see where to put the needle, and I just gave up sewing then, and. The way that I developed my skills with the sewing was basically by trial and error, such as uh, figuring out the best way to see where to put the needle from the back side of the hoop, or how to keep the needle from poking my legs, how to... um, sit in such a position that my back didn't get too tired when I was sewing and other things like that. As for the painting, I took an old painting class when I was in college and then the next quarter I took a drawing class and I really enjoyed those. And sometime during my life, I had wondered if I might be able to do oil painting on my own, but I just never thought it was feasible. And then in 2020, I lost both my parents within three months. And I was so, I was grieving so much. I was so sad and so unmotivated to do anything. And then I saw on Facebook some ads for these markers, the colored markers, and I 
ignore the air for three or four times from seeing it. And then finally, I just gave in and bought a set. They're like a cross between a felt-tip pen and a paintbrush. And I bought a sketchbook, and I just started drawing pictures and painting them. And that was about all I did for three or four months. And my mood changed. I became much healthier. And the the painting was very therapeutic. And I can't say that my skills using these markers have improved only over the over time. But I do know that my painting has improved a lot from the days that I painted the racks to fill off the countdown. Barbara, you are a good writer. Uh, your storytelling and your writing uh, kept me turning pages when I read your book. One of the things you did so well was immerse me in your experience living with disability. Let me set up this question by telling the audience that you are as hard and smart a worker, uh, probably more so than most anyone they'll ever meet. Um, You helped your parents run their campground in Wyoming, and that included uh, helping your mom with the finances. You graduated from high school with good grades and then went on to earn a, a degree in business management from the University of Northern Colorado. And when you were in college, you lived in the dorm and then got your own apartment off campus. You had as active a church life and social life as anyone. Um, I mean, apples to apples, you were every bit equal to or better than most young professionals coming out of college. And yet nobody would hire you for the longest time. Uh, Not only that, but the agencies and nonprofits that were supposed to help you find and start a career kept trying to steer you to part-time jobs that were below your abilities and your education and intelligence. Um, How much do you feel like most of the world uh, has underestimated you and maybe even stood in the way of you reaching your full potential? I am a cup half full type of person. I don't tend to think about what I don't have, but what I do have. And for the people who wanted me to keep my social, my safe at time and keep my social security, I think they really were just looking out for my best interest not knowing what my potential was. And to be honest, I might not have been able to hold a full-time job in a bookkeeping position. When I worked for my parents, I could do the bookkeeping whenever I wanted to, for as long as I wanted to, and it didn't matter when I did it, as long as it got done by the end of the month. I probably would not have had that kind of, I know I wouldn't have had that kind of new way 
working for a company if they have hired me. I can understand why anyone in the accounting business didn't hire me, although there may have been a couple of opportunities where I could have been hired and I might have been able to reach my full potential. I'll never know that. But once I switch my thinking from bookkeeping to proofreading, almost immediately an opening came out and I had an interview. That interview went well, but it didn't. Ah, I felt I did well on the test, but the manager was hesitant to hire me because of someone in the company who had a hang-up with uh, people with disabilities. Mm. When I left there that day, I felt like he had to hire me on the spot, but he didn't. Two weeks later, he called me, and he told me that he was not going to hire me, but that I... And he, what he, his reason was that I was because of my disabilities. And he said that I could call back in about six months or so, and I might have a job there. I have a friend who did uh, handicapped awareness workshops for companies. And I called her and I asked her if she would call the manager and explain to him my personality, how I don't consider myself disabled, and how I try to put other people at ease with my personality. She did call him, and in the course of their conversation, he told her that I was qualified for the job. So by her, by him telling me I wasn't hired because I was disabled, but telling her that I qualified for the job, that was blatant discrimination. And that was the first time that I had ever really felt discriminated against. And I wanted that job so well, I, I felt like it would be one that I could handle. And it just looked like something I wanted. And I wanted the spin, and I didn't want it six months down the road. And I took action and uh, called someone who put some pressure on the manager, and he hired me. And my family and some friends were kind of doubtful about my doing that, wondering if it might cause hard feelings down the road between him and me. But, like I said, I wanted that job so bad. And there never, I never felt like we, he had any hard feelings toward me. He was always friendly and laughing and 
very fuzzy living. And I love that job and I think I did reach my full potential in my pooping job. And I've always been grateful that I had that chance, even though it was only for like eight years. A few times in the book, you mentioned that people uh, asked you how you could do so much uh, or how you stayed so positive, uh, even with your disability. And you told them that you can't remember a time in your life when you didn't have your disability. So this is just normal life for you. Uh, nevertheless, you have had to endure a lot of things, chronic pain. Uh, a lot of people have let you down. Uh, that is a recurring theme in the book. And there were times where it is obvious that you were the victim of discrimination. Uh, you've had periods of intense stress and a few bouts with depression, and you even confessed that you thought about suicide once or twice. When writing about one of your lowest times, you wrote, quote, if God says to ask for anything and it will be given to us, why hasn't he made my hands better, end quote? Would you be willing to tell us about how you've dealt with depression and doubt in your life? How has your faith in God changed through the years? Well, this time I was really depressed. It was uh, because of several circumstances, too many negative stimuli bombarding me all at once. My nephew had just committed suicide. Uh, we were going through changes at work, and my speed and accuracy had dropped, and my health at home was not doing a good job, and all those combined caused circumstantial depression. I finally saw a psychologist about this, and she recommended that I see my doctor and ask for an antidepressant. Idea and he gave it one to me. I took that for seven months and it cured my depression. I think I could have stopped after six months, but he wanted me to continue taking it through the holidays because he said that that is when a lot of people become depressed. So that was my first time. The second time, I had a long-distance relationship with my boyfriend, and we had become quite serious to the point that he gave me a promise ring. We emailed and chatted a lot, and then one morning I woke up to an email of him breaking up with me. I was devastated because I thought I was going to be picked for life with a husband, someone to take care of me and be there for me for the rest of my life. And I was very depressed that time and I did 
considered suicide, although I would never have gone through with it. But what helped me get out of that was the little school students that I had online. I started thinking about them, and some of them were very serious about their lessons. And I realized that they were depending on me to send them lessons, to give them wisdom encouragement. And thinking about them and that I needed to be there for them got me, it changed my thinking. And eventually I got all of my depression with the help of my Wilbur School students. Well, the main ways is that I have learned to just trust God for everything. Uh, and now, especially with my parents gone, uh, I have to trust him. Uh, my sisters are in two different states. And I don't have any anyone here that really that I can turn to, and I just have to trust God. And, and even before my parents died, I have begun to, to trust God in all situations. I think being involved in revival school has also helped me to grow. I have to answer students' questions and encourage them to continue with their lessons. But I think the main thing is just trusting God. What I hope and pray happens from my book is that many people will be encouraged or inspired by my story or helped in some other way. I want them to know that we all have trials to go through, but if we didn't have them, we did not appreciate all the blessings that God gives us after we go through our trials. As I mentioned in the beginning of the book, Without pain, the joy in life won't show. And most of all, I want God to be glorified through my work for all the good things that he has accomplished in my life. Well, Barbara Bagwell is an artist and now author of her autobiography, Beautiful Stranger, now available I highly recommend it. We will post a link to that book in the show notes, and you will be very glad uh, if you buy it and read it. We'll also post a link to Barbara's artwork, so you can collect some of that yourself or give it away as a gift. Barbara is a member of the Pikes Peak Church of Christ in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Barbara, thank you for sharing your art and your story with all of us. Grace and peace to you. Thank you.
My wife is a lifelong Michigander. She's never lived anywhere else. She runs a museum, however, so she has a keen interest in culture. And a strange new culture is what she got the first time I took her to Tennessee to meet my family. And one of the first questions she asked as we drove south along I-65 was, what's a Waffle House? (laughs) Now, that's a good question. What is a Waffle House? It's more than a diner, more than a restaurant, I'll tell you that. Dear listener, how would you answer my wife's question? Well, spend any amount of time in a Waffle House, let me tell you, it will be a cultural experience. I've been to a lot of diners in my lifetime, but Waffle House is the only one that can hold up as a topic of conversation among strangers for an hour or more. It's weird. It's wonderful. It's Waffle House. I think we just came up with a new slogan. So what does Waffle House have to do with this next segment? Well, Philip Jenkins, the youth minister with the Mount Juliet Church of Christ in Mount Juliet, Tennessee, was looking for a way to get his youth group to set a new attendance record at an annual youth event they have there. As a little extra motivation, he promised to spend 24 hours straight at the local Waffle House if they could beat their goal. And they did. 136 teenagers attended the event, which beat the previous record of 130. And so Philip kept his promise. He camped out at Waffle House for 15 straight hours. Now, you may wonder, why not 24? That was the deal, right? Well, he finagled to take one hour off his total time for every waffle he ate, and he ate nine waffles. So 24 minus nine is 15. Nevertheless, 15 hours is a long time to hang out in one Waffle House. Those 15 hours, however, turned out to be a special experience, not only for Philip, but for the members of his congregation who visited him there and the Waffle House employees and regulars, too. Here to tell us more is Philip Jenkins himself. Philip, nine waffles in 15 hours, man. Did you have to switch to suspenders after that? (laughs) Uh, It was the eating part was a regrettable experience, but, <laughs> but, but it was so much fun, man. Thank you for having me on. Man, it's a pleasure to have you. So, I mean, the the obvious question, well, let me, let me back up here and ask you this first. So my wife is a Michigander, uh, grew up here, has never lived anywhere else in her life. And the first time I took her to Tennessee to meet my family, uh, one of the first questions she asked was, what's a Waffle House? And I thought, how do I answer this question? Okay, so I'm going to ask you that question first. What is a Waffle House for all of our listeners around the world that don't know? They don't have Waffle Houses in Michigan? Uh, there is not a Waffle House in Michigan. I looked it up. The closest waffle, waffle House to me is 63 miles away in Toledo, Ohio. That's a, I feel like we're, they're missing an opportunity. I feel like they're everywhere. Oh, I like agree. everywhere there's a hotel in the South, there's a Waffle yeah. House where you can like pretty much walk to the hotel from the Waffle House. I don't know if that's how they build them or not. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's... I don't I don't know the best way to describe it. If if America is a melting pot, Waffle House is a, a melting pot of America where you just get to see people from all walks of life. It's it's like the ultimate people watching experience. Uh there's probably you could probably conduct like psychological experience uh, experiments there at Waffle yeah. House. Um there's there's just it's it's dinner and a show. It's, uh, um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. You, you just never know what's going to happen. I was trying to think of how to compare it, what to compare it to. And it's, have you ever seen this show, uh, storage wars once or twice? Yeah. Where like they, they stand at a locker and they open the locker and you kind of look in and you see 
like some stuff, but you can't really see everything that's in there. Yeah. I feel like it's kind of like that. Like well, you go off us, you can look at it and kind of think, Oh, this is what it's like. But until you go in there, you really, you never know what's going to happen. That's um, right. You picked the place. Why did you pick Waffle House? It could have been, you know, endless, bottomless breadsticks at Olive Garden or, you know, cheddar biscuits at Red Lobster yeah. or Chick-fil-A or someplace like that. But you picked Waffle House. Why Waffle House? Yeah. One of those times where you're like, why, why did I do this to myself? But, um, well, I guess there's a couple of reasons. One is um, I ran across a story a while back about someone in a fantasy football league and the punishment for losing the fantasy football league was they had to spend 24 hours in Waffle House. I was like, that's really funny. And so it just planted a seed. I was like, I want to do something with that sometime. And so this idea of breaking a record with our youth group was like, what if we put this before them and, and we can make this happen? And so we knew it had to be, you know, did it have to be Waffle House? No, but it just sounded like an adventure. It sounded like fun. And we needed a place that's open 24 hours and yep. there's not a lot of places like that, you know? So, um, so you, uh, from Cheryl man, bacon's piece that she wrote about this, uh, it's in the print edition of the Christian Chronicle and we'll provide a link for, uh, for the listeners. Um, it sounded like your plan for that day when you showed up was just to get a lot of work done. And there's actually a picture in the story of, uh, you sitting at a booth and you had your laptop open. And so you seem to think this was just going to be you sitting there all day at a table, you know, study hall. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But that's not how things turned out. So it, how many visitors, first of all, do you think dropped by to see you that day? Oh, man, I wish I had looked at that before we got on here. I have a guest list of everybody who came to see us. We kept okay. like a guest book and uh, it was, oh, I can't remember. It was maybe 130, 135 wow. people who came. And so it really was like a revolving door of of people who came to visit us and, and just to you know, probably laugh at us a little bit, but also to eat some good food and uh, just just to enjoy the moment. Did you meet anybody new that day? Did you form relationships with anybody new that day? Yes. Um, this was a little, I guess, another thing that I kind of thought about going in. You know, you think about how something's going to go and then you actually do it and it's nothing like you thought it was going to go. I thought, yeah. I'm probably going to get to know a lot of people today. And with so many people coming to see us, you know, when you have guests, you feel like you have to entertain them. So I felt like most of my time was spent around people from church, you know, fellowshipping with them. But like right when I got there, there was that moment where it was before it was real busy. I got to know uh, the waitress that I had and it was kind of like, Hey, uh, I'm going to be here a long time. So, you know, I just kind of told her like, Hey, this is what I'm doing. And, and, uh, and when I sat down, uh, me and my coworker and and our first guest that came to see us was the elder that works with youth. And so he was the first one who came and had lunch with us and she was our waitress at the time. And so we kind of talked to her a little bit before our meal got there. We had a prayer together and asked if we could pray for her and her family. And, and, uh, and so she, she shared some stuff we could pray about for her. She has a son that has special needs and asked us to pray for him. And, uh, and then turns out I didn't know this until like later on, but that particular waitress, I didn't realize it, but she has been, she's been to our congregation before, like asking for help uh, for our right? benevolence ministry. And so that was really neat um, to make that connection. Uh, so there was a, a time to meet people kind of right before things got crazy. And then at the very end of night, when things calmed down, there was another waitress and she was probably the most fun 
uh, person that we met just had like a really fun personality and she just loved what we were doing and had fun with it. Um, and she shared a little bit of her story. She, um, was in an abusive relationship and her and her daughter moved out of that home and moved into a woman's shelter. And she lives a few minutes away from, from Mount Juliet. Uh, and she commutes to work and she was working that graveyard shift. Hmm. And, uh, and she, anyway, she shared a little bit more of her story when she moved out and, and went to the women's shelter. She got to know, Jesus for the first time. She didn't grow up around church and her life is a lot different now. And she just seems really happy mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and, and said, so she, she said she was doing really well. So that was a really neat thing and to meet someone, um, who's been through what she's been through and, you know, working at a job that is probably not easy to do. And then working those kind of hours and, and being a single mom, uh, but also to have that, that kind of attitude and that personality was really impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, as I was reading Cheryl's story about all the people who came to see you from church that day. And of course uh, you got to know the people that worked there at that store. Uh, suppose you saw some of the regulars that come in there uh, all the time. I started thinking a little bit about uh, Jesus and where he spent time, you know, the kind of people we see him around. And I, you know, church uh, for a lot of us uh, who, uh, you know, it's, it's a, you dress up, you go sit on a padded pew, uh, you know, it's a tasteful, tasteful decor, uh, small portions. It's like fine dining. But I wonder sometimes if the church Jesus had in mind resembles Waffle House a little more. And based on the description that you gave uh, at the top of the, the segment where I asked you, how do you describe Waffle House? Um, and so, I just wonder, as you were sitting there all day long, did you get a sense of, um, you know, this is the place where I think I would see Jesus? And and did you imagine what Jesus might be doing in a place like Waffle House day after day? Was was that is that a Jesus kind of place to to be? I I think you you hit on some really good things there. I think when you think about Jesus having a public ministry, um, and and so many times when we read about him being accessible to people, you know, the idea of just making yourself available in a waffle house for 24 hours. Um, you felt really, you felt like you're around people all the time. And, and I think ministry is people. Uh, and so I, when I, when I was thinking about it, we have a, our preacher at Mount Juliet, he did a lesson and this was like a long time ago. It was probably five years ago. Um, how, how the church should be like Waffle House. Is that right? And, uh, so yeah, he, he, he hit on some of the things that I, I guess things that you're kind of mulling over. Um, and so I asked him for some of those notes and just real fast, some things he shared. He just talked about how the church should always be open, you know, mm-hmm. like Waffle House is open all the time. Um, how we need to remember that it's, it's our job to serve and that we're not the customers. Um, we need to be ready to serve whoever walks in the door. Uh, he talked about the struggle that sometimes Waffle Houses are understaffed. And he said, isn't that the same thing with churches? Sometimes we feel like there's so much work to do and not enough people to work. And then also this idea of transparency, you know, like when they're cooking your food, like you can watch them do all that. Yeah. And he said in yeah. the church, we ought to be transparent about, hey, here's what I'm here's what I'm working on. And here's what I struggle with. And here's what I'm trying to do for God. And uh, anyway, those were just a few of his his messages that day. I thought that were pretty, pretty cool, worth repeating. How close is that Waffle House store to the church building? Oh, five minutes away. It's not five far. minutes away. So, um, as you sat there all day, I imagine that wasn't the first time you'd ever been in that Waffle House. I, I'm sure you've been there 
uh, a few times. Uh, but as you sat there for 15 hours all on one day and you watched the people come and go, um, did you get a sense of what's happening with your neighbors there? Uh, what's going on with your neighbors? What's going on in the neighborhood? And did you pick up any sense of what God might be up to um, just down the street from the church building at the local Waffle House? I think that's a great question. I think that there was so much busyness going on. It was difficult to get to the heart of some of that. And I think Mm -hmm. that if we had done a, almost like if we'd done a challenge and not told anybody what we were doing, I think we would have gotten to see more of those types of things. But again, it was just so busy all day long that, um, and and so many of the people who were coming in were connected uh, to the church. So, you're right. That's going on all around us. And if it was a private event where like me and my coworker did this and nobody else, we didn't tell anybody until after it was over. I think there'd be a lot more stories like that to share, but, uh, but it felt like it kind of felt like you're at a, a church fellowship meal that lasted yeah. like all day long. You know, When do you think you'll be able to eat a waffle house waffle again? <laughs> I'm not someone who gets tired of food. I could probably do that like now. i couldn't have done it like the 24 hours after the waffle house but you know about three days removed i'd be ready to go back all right i probably would have ordered something different though not a waffle well philip jenkins is uh the youth minister with the mount juliet church of christ in mount juliet tennessee he may also soon be the new spokesperson for waffle house we'll see about that you can read more about his recent adventure at waffle house at christianchronicle.org or click on the link in the show notes philip thank you for being on the show and frankly, making me crave Waffle House. It's it's lunchtime as we're recording this. And I wish there was one closer than 63 miles away. I'd be there right now. I'll, I'll see you in 14 hours. <laughs> Let's drive. Let's go. I'll meet you there. Love it, man. Love it. Well, next time I'm down there to visit family, I'll have to look you up and we'll, uh, we'll hit Waffle House together. I would love it. All right. Thank God you. bless you and your family. Thank you. You too. Well, it ain't Waffle House, but we hope you enjoyed your fill of this episode. Thank you for being our listener. You are the reason we do what we do. Thank you to Christian Chronicle CEO Eric Trigestad for dropping in at the top of the show. Thank you also to Barbara Bagwell for not only telling us her story today, but writing it down one keystroke at a time in autobiographical form. Most of all, thanks to Barbara for showing us all how real life is done. We all need to be more like her. Thank you again to Philip Jenkins and the youth group at the Mount Juliet Church of Christ in Mount Juliet, Tennessee, for putting him in a situation where he had a story to share with us today. We have one more episode this year. That one's coming out at the same time as this one, and it's a very special one that we can't wait to share with you. Just in time for Christmas, we'll bring you a conversation with Santa Claus himself. I'm not even making that up. Out of all the interviews I've done this year, The next one is my favorite. I can't wait for you to hear it. That episode is probably live now, and I promise it will put you in the mood for Christmas, so please give it a listen. We pray that God blessed you through what you heard today. If you received that blessing and you want to pass it on, please pray for this ministry and do a few things. Subscribe to this podcast and then share it with a friend. Recommend and review it on whatever podcast service you use, and send us your comments, ideas, and suggestions at podcast at christianchronicle.org. And if you feel fuller and richer because of something you heard today, please pay it forward. Make a tax-deductible gift to the Christian Chronicle. Just click on the link in the show notes or go to christianchronicle.org slash donate to make your gift now. Until next time, may grace 
and peace be yours in abundance, and a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. The Christian Chronicle podcast is a production of the Christian Chronicle Incorporated, informing and inspiring Church of Christ congregations and members around the world since 1943. The Christian Chronicle's associate editor is Audrey Jackson, editor-in-chief Bobby Ross Jr., and president and CEO Eric Trigestad. The Christian Chronicle podcast is produced, written, directed, and hosted by B.T. Irwin and is recorded, edited, and engineered by James Flanagan at Podcast Your Voice Studios in Southfield, Michigan, Detroit, USA.